Well, from the very beginning, when I arrived here 26 years ago now, the existing elders and I established eight big rocks that we said we wanted our church to be founded on. And national leaders have come and gone. The stock market has peaked and plunged and celebrities have made a huge splash. And then we say, who? And disappeared. But these eight big rocks remain the same for us because they are rooted in God's word that does not change. Aren't you grateful for something in our world right now that does not change? God's word that does not change. And so today I want to hold up just one, one of these big rocks, the rock of God's sovereignty that runs from the first page of the Bible in Genesis 1-1 all the way to its glorious, God-exalting, man-diminishing climax in Revelation 22-21. And while this great doctrine might be new to some of you, I cannot imagine living my life, loving my wife, and leading and loving this sweet church family without it. The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God anchoring me, settling me, centering me. I've told you before, but second to my initial conversion and salvation to our Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior in 1973. Yes, things were happening back then. I was seven Second to that salvation at seven years old to our Lord Jesus Christ. This great doctrine has changed my life more than any other. More than any other. In the summer of 1986 with a full head of hair swept back parted in the middle. Blonde. Thank you, sweetie. I took my Bible and I went from Genesis 1-1. Because I had a lead pastor that was preaching this and I'm like, huh? I don't know if I agree. I want to make sure the Bible teaches this. Oh, my goodness. I went from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, marking every instance, every declaration, every place you see the sovereignty of God over weather, over politics, over people, over rulers, over trials and suffering, over salvation. And you'll have a very, very marked up Bible. Because God rules and reigns. And it's a doctrine that's carried me. Those of you that have been here a while know some of the details. Carried me through incredible, incredible parenting trials. Incredible trials as a husband. Even, you know, in the last few years with Vicki, a new, a new condition that's quite limiting. As a pastor, as a parent, as a pastor, as a husband, as a fellow suffering sinner in a fallen, broken world. This doctrine anchors me, anchors me, anchors me more than any other. And as soon as I mention sin and suffering, what does come to my mind that's changed is, oh my goodness, the level of sin and suffering and brokenness that we see in our world has only escalated over the last 26 years, has it not? And so let me ask you, What comforts you and settles you 
in the midst of times like these. What enables you to sleep well and wake up hopeful? I would propose to you as your pastor and friend that your answer should be the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But as soon as I say that, I know we need to define our terms. What are we talking about? What do we mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God? Well, God's sovereignty means that he is in absolute and total control of all things. So that he rules over the universe in a way that everything happens either because he directly causes it or consciously allows it everything, both good and bad, everything. Paul Tripp has an excellent new book, an excellent new book on doctrine where he gives us 12 core doctrines that he says could change your everyday life. I agree with him. And in his book, which is in our resource center, by the way, and in his book, he gives a much more exhaustive definition of sovereignty that I love. I love it. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it. You read it. I put it in your bulletin. But go home today and read your way and, yea, verily, rejoice your way through it because he captures very well what the Bible actually teaches. But now here's what I am going to take time to do. I want to give you a phrase. I want to give you a phrase that I've been saying for two and a half decades now. And if you've been with us for a while, then you're going to recognize it. Ready? God limits. He decides how hot, how long, how bad. There's someone limiting this, you guys. It's not random. It's not chaos. God limits. God orders. You may think, is there anybody at the helm? Is anybody in control? Yeah. Orders and controls. How many things? Say louder. All things for his glory and our good. All things, pandemics, politics, politics, and personal trials and tragedies all come under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Say it with me. God limits, orders, and controls all things for his glory and our good. Just the ladies. Just the men. God limits, orders, and controls all things for his glory and our good. Now, here's the problem. Some of you are already probably pushing back right now. But what if it's not good? Let me tell you what's going on. Our, our definition of good, we have all these modifiers just stuck dangling around it. Oh, good is fun. Good has to be easy. Good would be comfortable. Good would match my dreams. Good would be exactly what I thought was going to happen. That's our problem. Push all those modifiers off the table. God's definition of good, ready, is whatever makes us more like Jesus. Whatever conforms us to the image of his son is good. Listen to me. If you were to dwell on that phrase, God limits, orders, controls all things for his glory. If you were to dwell on that phrase and... You are to become convinced of it from, for yourself from Scripture. See, there's a problem. You can't ride on my coattails. 
It doesn't matter that I believe it. It doesn't matter our elders believe it. It doesn't matter that thousands of historic Christians have believed that statement. If you were to become convinced of it for yourself from Scripture and begin to work it into the fabric of your heart and mind, it would change the way you live. Because it would change what you think about everything that's going on around us. Are there some things going on around us today? Is anything happening? Yeah. It would change what you think about everything that's going on around you and how you feel about everything that's going on around you. And listen to me. When what you think and how you feel changes, it changes what you think you could do and should do next. Thinking and feelings fuel and drive actions. Nobody does something for no reason. The world loves to act like, well, that's random. They have a chemical imbalance. No, 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 no. If you knew what they were thinking and you knew what they were wanting, where their affections were, it would explain what they just did. There are very few total bizarre people. You probably don't live with one. You may think it, but if you knew what they were thinking, you knew what they were feeling, you knew what they prized and treasured and believed, it would explain why they're doing what they're doing In the last 18 to 24 months, you guys, it breaks my heart. We've got some Christians in America. I'm in conversation with other workers and pastors in other places of the world. Guess what? It's not happening in other places of the world. It's mainly America where there's this level of chaos and confusion and panic and fear among Christians. We've got some Christians in America behaving shamefully. But if you knew what they were thinking and what they were feeling, it would explain why they're doing what they're doing. I believe they need to come back to this great doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And now I want you to feel the impact of it for yourself. And I think there's no better way to do that. Not the words of Pastor Brad, not a good friend, not another book like Paul Tripp's book. Oh my goodness. I want you to feel the impact of this great doctrine for yourself from scripture. So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to read some of it together aloud. Stand with me because there is nothing. Listen to me. There is nothing like seeing your sovereign God seated on his throne straight from scripture, unmixed, undiluted, unadorned, and uncontested. Don't read the reference. Let's just read the verses themselves. You ready? Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the, I don't hear you. We're going to start again. And don't, don't go too fast. Let's, let's chew our way through this. It's good. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. 
Let the whole world fear the Lord and let everyone stand in awe of him. For when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes. But the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Praise the name of God forever and ever. For he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. Oh, look at me. Thought about kings. We have presidents, governors. Mayors, civil authorities. Listen to me. Let me help some of you. Trump is no longer president. Not because there was a conspiracy. Not because the election was stolen. Not because machines were tampered with. Not because votes were hidden and did get counted. All of that may have happened. Do you realize that? Some of that really may have happened. We don't have to ever know. Because here's what we do know. God is sovereign over all that. God put Trump in office. And when God was done with Trump, he was out of office. This might disturb some of you even more. God put Biden in office. Oh, gasp. Yes. Yes. God put Biden in office. And when God is done with Biden, his people, his party, nobody will keep him in. Our God raises one up and puts one down. He is sovereign. That'll help you sleep better. (laughs) Pick it up with Daniel 4. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and He gives it to whomever He chooses. Who is He who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? These are rhetorical questions, you guys. The answer is yes, he did it. Yes, he did it. Yes, he did it. Now, I know it might seem unsettling to you to say that God is in control of calamities like pandemics, tsunamis, earthquakes. But my friend... The alternative is far more unsettling. If God is not, then who is? Somebody's greater than God. Well-meaning Christians do this so often on television for the news media, meaning well. And they'll say things like, one thing we know, God had nothing to do with that. Shut your mouth, please. The Bible doesn't teach that. You can say one thing we know, God is ultimately sovereign, and I cannot explain at all why he would want this, what his purposes are. But what I do know is he's in control, and he's sovereign. Not like, oh my goodness, ho, whoa. Pick it up again in Isaiah 45. I am the Lord. There's no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things things. The Bible teaches that everything, good and bad, has God at the center, ultimately in control. 
whatever he decrees will or will not happen. Stay with me. While at the same time, he is not the author of sin or evil. Real people are responsible for what they do. They're not puppets. It's not fatalism. You say, wait a minute, how can that be true? Both can't be true. Well, you just bumped into something that our minds can't grasp. And if you are only going to believe what logically makes sense to you, you can cut a bunch of your Bible out. All right? This is what it teaches about the sovereignty of God and the free will responsibility of people. This is not the only hard thing the Bible teaches you guys. It's like, why don't you explain to me the Trinity? Oh, sure. Virgin birth. Incarnation of Christ. The hypostatic union of Christ that he's fully God and fully man. There are things in the scripture that you will have to say, I can't reconcile or grasp that, but I can bow the knee and say, you are God and I'm not. Listen to me. If every single thing that is revealed to us about our God, you could fully grasp and map out and explain, we don't have much of a God. He's not any greater than your little tiny gray matter. If he's really infinite, if he's really as high and lifted up as the Bible says, there's going to be some things we just won't understand. But this is what the Bible teaches. Pick it up in Isaiah 46. I am God and there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure if the Republicans are in office. No. Wherever, whenever he does exactly what he pleases and his counsel shall stand. Pick it up in Ephesians. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Say it again. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Say it like the Lost world could hear it and know we believe it. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Now here's what I'm going to ask you to do. A little teaching moment. The charismatics did not think of lifting hands. That's in the Bible. And the reason it's there is when you lift your hands and praise and worship to God, you're saying, you are God, I'm not. I'm weak, you're strong. I need you. It's a posture of I need you. Need you. I've got my first grandchild. Nothing quite moves me like him coming over and going. And when he says pop pops, oh, that'll be the end of me. Right now he doesn't talk, but he reaches. This is what we're doing, you guys. And so I want to invite you. We're going to say it again because this is worship. Worship is not just when you sing a song. It's when you extol God. And we can do that with scripture. Now, if your background's Episcopalian, Baptist or Presbyterian, just do this if that's all you can do. Just turn your little palms over. You know, just hold the baby. Hold the baby. But if you can go there, whoo, wash the windows. Oh, baby. Get them up. Get them up. Ready? If you can't. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Again, for the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. You may be seated. Oh, I just got you ready for heaven. Because you are going to do this. 
It says in Revelation 5 and 7 that there will be myriads of myriads with hands lifted and palm branches saying, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory. You're going to do it then. You might as well warm up now. Oh, didn't that feel good? Woo! Oh, our God reigns from beginning to end and is sitting on his throne ruling over an unshakable kingdom now. Not one day, someday. You realize the Bible teaches there is an invisible, unshakable kingdom right now. The Bible teaches it's true right now in America and all over the world. He reigns. His kingdom's unshakable. He's sitting on his throne. There's not one single verse that shows God waiting on permission from man to do something he wants to do. None. There's not one single verse that shows a frustrated God who's been thrown off course by the activities of men. Oh, I was going to do this, but now I can't. None. None. And so in the time that remains, I want to make some practical application for you to how this great doctrine should impact your life. You realize doctrine matters. Doctrine should impact your life and change how you live when you truly believe it and you work it into the fabric of your life. Number one, to trust in the sovereignty of God, you will have to resist the counsel of some committed but confused believers. Now, I don't know if this has ever occurred to you before. Most of us realize, i got to make sure I don't listen to the lies of unbelievers. The lies of unbelievers. The lies of the world is so confusing. Even the lies of my own sinful flesh. Guess what else you have to be able to do to, from time to time? You will have to be willing to resist. Resist what some committed and confused believers might be saying. Their counsel. Did you know you can be very committed and confused at the same time? Just because you're committed doesn't mean well, it's got to be right. Look at the commitment. We got Muslims blowing themselves up. They're committed. Are they correct? No. You can be committed and confused. Be careful. You will also have to be having coffee with a believing friend or lunch with a believing friend or an email exchange with a believing friend where you may have to push back and say, whoa, 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 whoa. I can't go there with you. I want you to know that the level of panic and despair that we see raging in our culture today and sadly even among some Christians is not a new thing. It's a human thing. And it's what we're prone to when we lose sight of God. Unbelievers don't seem at all, right? He's off the table. He's not on the radar. But could believers become so obsessed and focused on right here, right now? And saying, watch this video, read this link, do this blog, sign up for this so you can not miss a moment of what's bad. Oh, good, that'll help me. Yes, they could become so obsessed with right here, right now, they could lose sight of who God is, where God is, and what God is doing. Just because they lose sight of it doesn't mean you have to lose it with them. You may have to resist the counsel of some committed but confused believers. Let me take you to Psalm 11 to show you what I'm talking about. Go to Psalm 11 in your Bible. Psalm chapter 11. You follow along as I read it. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee 
like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Oh, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Here's what you need to understand from this psalm. The panic, the panic that prompted David to pen this psalm was not his own. David is not unsettled. David is not confused. And David is not scared. But he's surrounded by the apparently well-meaning but confused friends and counselors who want him to run scared like them. Who want him to get up in arms. Who want him to say, oh my goodness, what do we do now if the foundations are destroyed? I hope you realize, surely you've seen it played out in the last 18 to 24 months. Chaos loves company. Nobody loves melting down by themselves. Please do it with me. No one loves panic, frantic by themselves. I want a crowd. They want you to put on your panic party clothes and do it with them. Let's do it together. And if you won't do it with me, now I'm mad at you because you're part of the problem. We need everybody to panic at the same time. That's the best way to see change. That's the best way to lose your mind. You may have to just say, I I can't go there with you, my friend. I see it just like you see it. I'm not clueless, but I'm seeing something you're not seeing. And I will not, I will not freak out. I will not melt down because God is sovereign and in control and on his throne and aware of all that's going on. And he's working his purposes just like he always has through all of history. David's not having it. David is not having it. Because David understands this great doctrine that we're talking about today. He has not lost sight of who his God is and where his God is like they have. Look at what David was up against. Letter A. His well-meaning friends want him to run scared. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For, notice this phrase, for behold. Right? So they're looking at something a lot. The wicked. For behold. Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Oh, but it gets worse. Let her be. His well-meaning friends have catastrophized the whole thing and they want him to lose heart. Look what they're saying in verse 3. Oh my goodness, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous even do? What is that verse talking about? There are often there are times, you know, I'll see a verse and I'll think, oh my goodness, I know what I hope that means because that'll preach. And then with integrity, I have to dig into it and say, does it really mean that? This is one of those, I knew what I thought it meant and what I hoped it meant. And when I dug into it, every single commentary, every single one confirmed what I thought. 
This verse is so timely for us today, you guys, because this verse is talking about when the social, it's not talking about the literal temple, the foundation is being destroyed. It's talking about when the social fabric of life is disintegrating all around you. It's talking about when the glue of any normal sense of civil order seems to be coming unhinged, undone. It's talking about a complete breakdown of law and order so that the standards of society seem like they're crumbling all around you. Can you think of any other time that reminds you of that? Now, right? That's what has certain people so upset. And it is disturbing. I'm 59. Trust me, I think this is the most disturbing time I've lived in. It's just not the most disturbing time that's ever existed in history. And it does not change who my God is and where my God is and what he's up to. Yes, there's a sense more than ever. I was just, you know, I was just taught to my sweet parents. They're in their 80s. What they keep saying is, I told, I told Ahmed, they have a ministry with, with internationals. I told Ahmed, they'll never know my America. They'll never know the America. I know, mom and dad. But how about let them know your God who hasn't changed? I know it's sad that some may never know the America we knew. The main thing we're supposed to be about is not America. And oh, I hope America stays the same. I want God to be glorified. I want to be part of his expanding kingdom. I want to see lost people come to faith in him. Let's be about what we're supposed to be about and not lose heart. Whew. I know it's disturbing. But his well-meaning friends are trying to suck him into panic and push him towards despair. And he will not go there. Here's what I love about this chapter I have you in. Let me share something with you. Because I still get pushback, sadly. From people that are like, why do you make so much about read your Bible every day? Isn't that kind of legalistic? Read your Bible every day. I think most of our physicians in our, in our church family would say, uh, same reason I say, tell me about your diet. How much water are you drinking? Are you fruits and vegetables? Do you have... Da, da? Folks, this is our food. This is your soul food. And this is what washes and renews your mind and reorients you and aligns you so that you can sleep well and wake up hopeful. If you're not taking this in, I mean regularly, you will not be doing well. It's because as a pastor, I can't go house to house and hold your hand and help you. But this can help you. God's spirit in you would love to use his word to encourage you. That's why I read it. How much of it? How often? Try to read it daily and every year daily and every year. And here's, here's what the deal is. This is a Psalm that I saw like three or four years ago. You realize I was disturbed three or four years ago. Some of these Christians right now, I'm like, why are you just now getting upset? I think it's been bad for a long time. I didn't like Obama. That was eight disturbing years where I thought I was going to go to jail. I had, I had pastor friends in Houston that their sermons Their sermons were called into court and judges were looking at their sermons saying, if you say homosexuality is a sin, you're going to jail. That was during Obama. Things have been scary before 2020. I don't know what it is that all of a sudden Christians are like, no, freak out. It's been ungodly for a while now, right? And so I saw this psalm and I was like, oh, that's good. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David gives an answer to what the righteous can do. And it's what I've been doing. It's what I need you to do. 
And so I prayed. You know, I, I preached on the sovereignty of God before, those of you that have been here a while. And so I didn't want to just microwave a message. I got some stuff. Been a pastor 35 years. I got a lot of stuff. I was like, God, I don't want to just nuke something and put it out there. And I got on my knees and I prayed with my hand. I said, God, what do you want to say to your people this year, January? It's like, popped in my head, Psalm 11. I was like, oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. Thank you, Lord. Psalm 11. You guys, one of my favorite things about the Bible, and I have a lot of favorite things about it, is how you realize this is a right now book, not a way back then book. It's right now. It's timeless because the author is God. So those of you that are guilty, I just struggle getting excited about reading the Bible, Brad, because it's about people I don't know in places I've never been doing stuff I don't care about. Well, let me help you. The first two are true, and the last one is absolutely wrong. People you might not know, places you've never been. Oh, my friend, it's not stuff that doesn't matter. Since God gave this to us, nothing, the issues in our world are the same, you guys. And the human heart is the same. So when you read this, I regularly find myself saying, oh, my goodness, that is so good. That is so good for right now. Thank you, Lord, for right now. For, you realize God's word is ready to meet you in the times we're in now, right now, and will help you right now. But you got to make a choice to open it up and sit before it and say, God, feed me, help me, reorient me, renew my mind. I want you to see David's response to his friends, because some of you may need to do the same thing with some good, committed, but confused Christians that are tugging on you. He does three really important things that are the same things we got to do. Letter C, David refused to panic for three really important reasons. Number one, <laughs> he basically says to them, I'm already choosing to trust God. I can't go with you. Do you realize the Bible is not a b- book filled with stop, stop that, stop that. The Bible is a book of put off and put on. You don't want to worry? Worship. You can't worship and worry at the same time. You, if you're so busy worshiping, you just can't worry. These two things are like oil and water. And this is true also. David says in verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. It's present active. I'm already doing that. So sorry, I can't go with you. I can't run screaming. I can't melt down because I'm trusting in the Lord. The New King James Version puts it well. It says, in the Lord, I put my trust. Every time I see that in my Bible, I circle it, put. You know why? Because it shows that trusting God is active and intentional. No one ever wakes up, right? No one ever wakes up saying, oh my goodness, I just woke up today and I have no reason, uh, idea why, but I just trust the Lord. Overwhelming sense of trust in God, said no one ever. You never just drift towards trusting God. It is intentional. You realize trusting God is active. It takes effort. It'll take thought. It'll take emotion. It's intention. You got to strap on and say, I am choosing to trust God. And as I'm so busy doing this, I can't do what you're doing. That's what the passage is. In fact, you can see David is almost like he's startled. He's taken back. Look at verse one. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? Do you see? He is shocked. They're thinking, this is, this is normal. Why aren't you doing this? Since he's so busy doing something else, 
He's like, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird? How can you say to my soul, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I am already choosing to trust God. I've put it there. I'm kind of a neat freak, type A. My, mom, yeah, my wife just said, hmm. My mom raised me saying, everything has a place. You keep things in their place. When I find a Phillips screwdriver in the living room, that don't belong there. That bothers me a lot. But I pick it up and I take it back where it goes. Down two flights of stairs into the garage, workbench, corkboard, little hooks. It goes with the other screwdrivers. All the world is right now. What did I do? I had to put it. It took effort. It took time. It took thought. It took you guys trusting God is no different. In the Lord, I take refuge. In the Lord, I've put my trust. I'm putting it there. I'm putting it there. My flesh is saying, no, no, no. The world is saying, no, no. Committed but confused Christians are saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to put it there. Notice what else David does. He says, number two, I still see God in control of it all. Verse four, you guys, is almost awkward. It's almost like, whoa, look at the change of subject. Just so all of a sudden, poof. His answer back to them. He's answering them back in verse 4. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David simply says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. He's like, I love that first part. The Lord is in. Just stop right there. We've got Christians acting like he's out of office. He's out. He's on a journey. He's not paying attention. He's wandering around. He's in. God is in his holy temple, on his holy throne, and fully aware his eyes of all that's going on. That's our God. That's our God. And because David knew it, it changed how David was responding and acting. He saw God still in control of it all. And then number three, he said, I know God will grow me in it and one day make all things right. Here's the other thing that David had a distinction of that he thinks they had lost. And I think some Christians have lost today in America. He recognizes, he says, the Lord, look at verse five, the Lord tests the righteous, but... His soul hates the wicked. You realize our God, while we're in the mix down here with it all, and it looks like, oh my goodness, it's all happening to us just like it's happening to everybody else. The Bible never teaches that God will keep you and spare us from adversity, from heat, from furnace, from straining, from stretching, from persecution. He just says he's with you in it and he will use it to grow you. What the world might mean to crush you, cannot. He's wanting to stretch you, test you, grow you. You will never taste or face the wrath of God. You will not be punished. You will not. He makes a distinction. The Lord tests. So wicked people may make decisions fully intent on harming us. God says, I'm sovereign and I'll use it to test you, to stretch you, to grow you, to cause you to send your roots deeper down in Christ, to know me more, less of you, more of Jesus. The Lord tests the righteous. He's sovereign, but his soul hates 
the wicked. Ooh, th- this, this next part is really scary, you guys. The Lord hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. If, if you're saying we got Christians that are acting like, oh my goodness, but look at the level of wickedness. Look at the violence. Trust me, you guys. God hates it more than you do because he's way more holy than you are. And you say, then what is going on? Why doesn't he do something about this? Because he's not just holy and just. He's loving and merciful. You realize the delay? Sometimes Christians are acting like, get it done. Make it right, right now. Oh, my friends, when God gets it done and makes it right, millions of people are going to hell forever. Forever. So right now, Right now is an opportunity for more to come to faith in Christ during the chaos, during the unrest. We don't need Christians running around just as chaotic. We need Christians who have hope. We need Christians who will live in a way that someone will say, tell me about the reason for your hope. First Peter 3.15, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason of your hope with meekness and fear, not with raging and hate. Oh, it's a time that there could be a harvest Yes, these times are scary, but it was before 2020 that we all saw videos of Muslims beheading women, children, men on beaches. Was I disturbed? Oh, yes. Did I get scared? Oh, yes. Guess what also happened? You're not going to learn it on Fox News or CNN, but I have people on the grounds in those places. There has been a revival of, of people coming to faith in Christ in Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, like no point in history. Untold thousands are coming to faith after they saw that. It didn't cause them to say, "Woo, make sure you don't say you're a Christian. They wanted it. And they were also horrified if this is Islam. Oh, my goodness. But what do you have that you would die and your family now forgives? You guys, read history. The greatest times of harvest and revival have not been during easy prosperity. Hard. Right now is a time of unrest and darkness and wickedness, which makes it a great time for people to come to faith in Christ. Even unbelievers are disturbed by today. And they're wondering, what is the hope? What What do I need that I don't have? It's a tremendous time to be a Christian in this world. But let me give you another practical takeaway. Number two, trusting in the sovereignty of God changes the way you process your own life. You realize that of everything in the creation, we are unlike aardvarks, golden retrievers, houseplants. Now I get a little pushback that I say that every time, but I just like it. <laughs> Somebody who's sitting right there, he, he mailed me a little plastic aardvark because I say that so much. Thank you, Randy. But it's true. We're the only ones created in his image. And here's one of the things that distinguishes us as image bearers. We're interpreters. We want things to make sense. We connect dots. What is going on? What is going on? How do I interpret this? How should I process the problem? We often process it wrong. We connect dots wrong. And listen, one of the key pieces in that equation that keeps people from connecting the dots correctly and interpreting and processing right is not understanding the sovereignty of God, you guys. This will change how you process and think through your own life. Letter A, his sovereignty means that your pain always has a purpose. It's never random. 
It always has a purpose. Jim Elif has written an excellent track titled, What Does Luck Have to Do With It? And in this track, he talks about Johnny Erickson Tata. Might be a name or a person you've heard of. Johnny Erickson Tata has now been in a wheelchair, wheelchair bound for 55 years. Quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down after a diving accident at 17 years old. Do you know how long 55 years is to be in a wheelchair? Do you know all the inconveniences and suffering and things that you don't even know about when you're a quadriplegic? She's lived that. She's actually one of the longest living quadriplegics on record today. And she hasn't just hung in there and lived. She has spent 50, she's 72 now. She has spent 55 years radiating the love of Christ as God has used one wheelchair bound quadriplegic to start a worldwide ministry of books and radio and conference speaking and and getting wheelchairs to people in other places in the world that can't afford them. One quadriplegic woman. And Jim Elif says one time his brother Tom asked Johnny how she made it through the difficult battle of being a quadriplegic. I want you to hear her answer. She said, and I quote, I suppose what helped me to get through this more than any other thing was reading Lorraine Bettner's reformed doctrine of predestination. What? Not what you were expecting, is it? Why would she say that? Why would that be a comfort? Surely she means some music, a podcast, a poem, a book about comfort, a book about pain, suffering. No. She said, and it's a big book, I own it. Reading the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner. And Jim Elif goes on to explain it this way. He says, quote, what she was saying was that she came to understand through this book that God is in control. And if God is in control, then her accident wasn't just a fluke, but a purposeful arrangement by a loving God. She could trust a God like that. That accident cost her freedom and brought chronic suffering. But to Johnny, that diving accident was a huge gift from God, a platform for speaking to the world about her favorite subject. Christ. And you don't have to be Johnny Erickson Tata for this to be true. And God may never use you for a worldwide ministry, but trust me, the Bible assures every one of us as believers that the same thing's true for you. There's nothing random, random that's come into your life that has no meaning. The difficulties you're facing right now are no accident. And so if that is true, if that's true, How should you respond to your problems knowing that there's a purpose, a purpose behind it and a loving, wise, good, sovereign God who's permitted it into your life? Well, let me suggest the response of Joseph. And I'm not talking about Joseph and Mary. Joseph in Genesis. Here's a young man that at 17 years old, His brothers hated him. Now, some of you say, yep, that was my family. But I think that'll be the end of similarities. If you think you had a hard life, his brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery at 17 years old. Tossed him to a group of Midianites on camels. He doesn't even speak the language. How would you like that? He is screaming, guys, no, no, no. Until they can't hear his voice anymore. And he gets drugged 
off to Egypt and sold on a slave block and drug into a house to be a slave for a man. He still has a good attitude and chooses to work hard and be good at what he does. And the man's wife tries to get him to go to bed with her. And here's where we have problems where we're like, but if you do the right thing, God will bless you. He did the right thing. He said, no, he ran from the house. When the master came home, she lied and said, he raped me. And the master then put him in a deeper, darker, worse dungeon. Now, for a lot of people today, they would have been, that's it for me and God. What kind of God lets these kind of things happen? But Joseph didn't. Didn't. And then when he was number two in command, since the Bengals already played and won yesterday and you got nothing to do today, you might read this. Genesis 37 to 50 is one of the greatest stories of a hard life and God being sovereign. Genesis 37 to 50. He's now number two in command of Egypt. His brothers are on their knees before him. They don't recognize him. He was raised in Egypt. He speaks another language. He's got the funny hat on. They don't even recognize him. And he says, I am Joseph. They wet themselves. They didn't say, oh, good. They're like, oh, my goodness. Now we're going to get it. And he declares one of the greatest verses in all the Bible, Genesis 50, 20. He looks at them and says, but as for you, you meant evil against me. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Notice he didn't say, oh, guys, don't worry about it. God is sovereign. You are puppets. You had to do it because God needed me here to do this. So don't worry about it. He doesn't say that because the Bible doesn't teach that. They freely and wickedly chose to do what they did. And yet God is still sovereign to accomplish his purposes. That's what the Bible teaches. It does not let people off the hook. And it does not say people are not. He says, you meant it for evil. And then to my favorite words in all the Bible, say it with me. But God, say it louder. But God, I found one just last week in my Bible reading is circled. I got them all circled. But God meant it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Some of you have been hurt. You've been hurt. You've, been, you've had wicked evil done against you by parents or spouses or bosses or brothers or sisters or employees, employers and other people. And what they did was meant for evil. But God, but God, but God can sovereignly use it for good in your life. It's the same thing that Paul was teaching in Romans eight twenty eight when he said... And we know, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now, be careful. Notice he doesn't say all things are good. Rape is not good. Abuse is not good. Lots of things are not good. He says, we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And notice he doesn't say, we hope. I'd like to believe it's true and I sort of see it, but I'm not sure. Why does Paul say we know? Same thing I brought you a minute ago. Because he knows his Old Testament, you guys. He had the entire Old Testament that just shows so clearly the sovereignty of God over all things. We know God. We know his sovereignty. We know how he operates. And finally, letter B, his sovereignty means that there are no misfits. Some of you have had your 
yourself in a category of misfit. I'm just not like everybody else. Glad those verses apply to a lot of people, but not me, not me, not me. You see, God chose your parents, your place of birth, your physical features, your time in history. So many of us spend a lifetime fretting over and wishing some of these unchangeable features could be changed. There's nothing you can do about it. Who your parents were, where you were born, where you were living, time in history. And God tells us in his word that he is sovereign over all of that. You say, Brad, what about handicaps or things we would consider disabilities? Surely God has nothing to do with that. Not what the Bible teaches Listen to the conversation between Moses and God in Exodus 4. So this is God calling Moses to go to Egypt and stand in front of Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Not an easy assignment. And so Moses is trying to beg off. And Moses is saying, oh, God, I can't even talk. I'm not good at talking. Like, you need to find somebody else. I've been with sheep for 40 years in the wilderness. They don't talk, so I don't talk. Kind of not good at this. Listen to God's answer. When Moses says, I can't talk well... Exodus 4, 10 and 11. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent neither before nor since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, I did it. I did it. Psalm 139 verse verse 13 says he knits us together in our mother's womb. God made you just the way you are. The world may see it as limitations and you may also know there's some really limiting things about this. I would have loved for this not to be true, but this can be a comfort to you. It's not that God only begins to work things out once you're out here in the world. Gestation and creation from the very moment Conception took place. God was at work creating you. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. Oh, in America and sadly, even among some Christians today, we've allowed God to be everywhere but on his throne. And we're paying dearly for it. Because I hope you realize what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Doctrine of God is not just some academic thing to, to toss around. Oh, it, it affects how you live and what you, what you think about God. How big is your God? Some of you got a little God, a frustrated God. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Your doctrine of God affects and directs your life more than anything else. Oh, come back. Come back if you left it or if you've never heard of this before. Come back to an absolutely sovereign God who limits, orders, and controls all things for his glory and our good. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for not leaving us in the dark. You are high and lifted up, incomprehensible on so many levels, and yet you've stooped. And chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word so that we would know, that we would know enough to be encouraged, to be reoriented, to be filled with hope.
Oh God, help us to see you more so that we could live in a way that you could use us in this, in this dark and broken world. Thank you that we get to be your people for such a time as this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.